particularly appreciate you joining us on what is not just a sunny day, but also a day with incredibly heightened security precautions uh, due to a very high-profile guest who's in London today, though sadly not at today's event here. Um, and I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Professor Gary Sturgis uh, to discuss what the UK can learn from Australia in relation to outsourcing. After 40 years of growth, spending with external suppliers uh, by the UK government now amounts to £284 billion a year. That's about one in three of every pound that is spent by the UK government. And the role of the private voluntary sectors ranges from frontline services like prisons and adult social care to back office functions like HR, IT. Uh, it includes support services like catering and cleaning, huge construction projects like Crossrail, HS2, and also a huge amount of military hardware as well. <coughs> Yet despite the critical role that the private voluntary sectors are playing in UK government, outsourcing is at something of a crossroads. After, in the last 18 months, we've seen two of the biggest suppliers to government, Carillion and Interserve, uh, collapse. We've seen other large suppliers hit financial difficulties as well. And after the best part of 20 years of broad political consensus about the role of particularly the private sector in government, we now have a Labour leadership that is much more critical of that and is talking about bringing large swathes of services back in-house. Um, the Institute has a long-standing interest in outsourcing. We've published a number of reports on uh, contracting, on uh, market stewardship, and most recently in December, we published a detailed analysis of the scale and shape of UK government procurement and made detailed recommendations on how government could prove both the effectiveness and accountability of that public spending by significantly increasing the quality of data that is made publicly available. Uh, and later this summer we'll be publishing a follow-up report that looks at when outsourcing has and hasn't worked and what we can do about that going forward and there will be further reports to come. So. With all that in mind, uh, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Professor Gary Sturgis. Professor Sturgis is the Australia and New Zealand School of Government Chair of Public Service Delivery at the University of New South Wales, Australia. Um, before that, he served as Executive Director of the Serco Institute, which is a think tank. And in the 1990s, he was the Cabinet Secretary in the State Government of New South Wales. So shortly I'm going to be handing over to Professor Sturgis who will make some opening remarks. I'm then going to ask a few questions uh, before opening out to the audience uh, for a Q&A. And I'd encourage everyone who's here today and everyone who's watching online uh, to tweet about the event using the hashtag IFG Outsourcing uh, and follow the event, though probably not here if you're in the room, uh, on at IFG Events. So with that, I'll hand over to you, Professor Sturgis. Okay. So let me start, um, as um, I suppose only an academic would, by questioning the, the, um, the uh, subject I've been given to speak on. <laughs> Firstly, um, <clears throat> um, the term outsourcing. I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I've been back in Australia now um, for eight years. Um, I think it's interesting that that term still seemed to be uh, the, the term of preference. I think it's an unfortunate term. Uh, in the private sector, outsourcing is just one of those things you do or don't. It, it's simply a, um, 
you know, if, it, if it's right and there are people who can, can provide a particular function for you, then you do it. That is not the case in the public sector. In the public sector, the term outsourcing carries with it a whole lot of baggage, ideological baggage. It, it carries with it the, the assumption that the private sector is superior to the, to the, to the, uh, the private sector is superior to the public sector, for example. Um, so I, 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 I think it's unfortunate that we, um, that you're still caught up in that term. Um, I've, that's not to say that the language isn't used in Australia, um, but I think probably there's a lot, there's a much more use of more neutral terms such as contracting, um, for example. So um, I, 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 when we talk about our sourcing, I think we're, we're talking about a range of different things. Firstly, I think we mean partly contracting. Now, contracting is uh, simply a, it's a neutral tool. It's the process of using a contract uh, in order to ensure that a particular good or service is delivered. You can insource using contracting and you can create joint ventures using contracting. Outsourcing is not the only thing you can do with it. It's just, you know, there's a whole sort of body of, of law and, and business practice associated with contracting in, and it, it functions out there in the, the big world, the, the world of commerce, um, in an utterly neutral way without, without the sort of baggage. Uh, in government, um, when we speak about outsourcing, um, we almost always mean competitive tendering. And the private sector, it is not unusual at all for people to contract without engaging in competitive tendering. And I think those two concepts need to be unpacked. Um, for a variety of reasons, historically, uh, we have in government all, almost always gone to a competitive tender when we have gone to contract. Um, and the public likes competitive tendering. When these things are going to be contracted, um, they, they do like competitive tendering um, because it's transparent. Um, it is more transparent than the alternatives and with the probity concerns associated with the exercise of the discretion associated with contracting, people are reassured by that. Treasuries and cabinet offices, central agencies, like uh, competitive tendering because it reveals evidence of the efficiency um, boundary. And that's something that central agencies find very hard to access and... Um, and competitive tendering is a very powerful tool for revealing that. Um, it, of course, if you use it wrongly, can distort and wind up um, taking you into, into an inefficient space. But, but, but treasuries, I find, have found over, over most of my career that treasuries and central agencies like um, market testing, like competitive tendering, because it pushes that boundary. So I think that's... We sort of need to distinguish that. And some of the failures that you're observing in this, have observed in this country um, have arisen not particularly from contracting, which is an inherently collaborative process, but have rather arisen from the, the way in which procurement or competitive tendering was used. So I think that it's valuable to unpack, unpack that. Associated with that is a, what I call the varnish tender box approach. Um, I'm old enough to remember varnish tender boxes in the foyers of, of government departments. And that's 200 years old in this country. It goes back to a debate in the, throughout the 18th century about what was called open, open contracting. And that is you publish an advertisement, um, people submit tenders and deposit it into that, into that uh, varnish tender box. They are all taken out and you pick the lowest price. And even in the 18th century, um, contractors were saying, 
be very, very, very careful about that because you'll wind up people with people submitting low-ball low bids in order to get in and who won't be able to deliver. Um, in, in the IT world, that's now called waterfall. Um, it's linear, um, it, you know, and, it, and it goes one way. And, and in the IT world, the, 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 the alternative to that is, is agile. Agile is about an ecosystem. It's about a supply chain. And the public sector, by and large, really grapples with that as a concept, the idea of a supply chain. I have argued that many of the markets for some time now, that many of the things that, that, we, that we in the public debate call markets are actually government supply chains. It's certainly true of support services. Um, and I don't think there's going to be a great deal of winding back on that. Um, and in spite of what Labor might think they're going to do, when you have um, FM and logistics and IT companies with the capability and the scale that we now have around the world, um, whether you're public or private sector, you want to have a pretty good argument why you would want to replicate that kind of expertise and that kind of deep investment inside government. Um, and quickly, there's then the quite different phenomenon of opening up frontline public services to the market or to competition. And I think that's quite a different process and the private sector just doesn't do that. Um, it, it's, it's unimaginable that you would um, open up your core business, deliberately open that up to competition in the private sector. But that's because the private sector lives in a market environment and government doesn't. Um, there's a whole lot of ways that you can do that um, without outsourcing. And again, I think in terms of unpacking the language and the, the way we think about this, um, voucher markets or choice-based markets are a, a classic example of that. In Australia, we have a number of choice-based markets. The, our Medicare system, um, the, the system for public insurance of um, general practitioner visits, uh, that market was created by a Labor government. The National Disability Insurance Scheme um, a huge voucher scheme for uh, disability supports in Australia uh, is going to have a lot go wrong with it because then they're, they're, they've got too much of the market mentality going on. But it, it's a system, a choice-based system that was invented by a Labor government. So we, we do a lot of this around the world, around the industrialised world. It's one way of doing it. The other one, which I will just touch on briefly in a minute, is contestability, which is the credible threat of competition without necessarily having to have competition. And, um, and uh, you know, we've, we've been doing some interesting work on that. So I, I just think that for a whole lot of reasons, um, because partly because of the ideological baggage, partly because it's too big and partly because it's too small, I think outsourcing is sort of a bit of an unfortunate concept to get locked in on. In terms of learning from Australia, I'm sort of a bit embarrassed about that, but um, because you could, uh, we could be here talking about learning from the private sector, and there's, there's a huge amount we can learn from the private sector and how they do things. Um, and I think increasingly in support services we will be. Um, and um, and um, I, I guess the other thing is I could be sitting here talking about lessons you could learn from yourselves 20 years ago. 
because there was a time, I mean, I spent a lot, a lot, I've spent a lot of time, I lived here for 11 years, but I've spent a lot of time before and after that visiting here. Um, because you were doing it, you were doing the most interesting stuff in the world, and there was a time when you were doing it well. But what I find when I gave evidence to the Public Administration Committee last year, there's almost no member of the, memory of this. You don't remember that you did prison contracting really well before you more recently did it badly. And so there's actually a lot of lessons. I was over here to learn, well, and to contribute, but, but um, I have been able to take a whole lot of those learnings back to Australia, and I learned those things here. And for those who, of you who are aware of my paperclips report, there's been a whole lot of things broken since, um, and broken, ultimately broken by government, because this is government supply chain. So quickly, what could you, what, what could you learn? And I'll, this will be just quick headlines. Firstly, um, um, Go to the next page. I've got it down my notes. Firstly, um, I think the paperclips point that procurement and contracting tools that are fitting for paper buying paperclips are not fit for purpose when you are engaging for frontline services, complex frontline services. Um, and we, I think, it's about that's about contract design, and I think we in Australia have got that better. We are we are more comfortable with using a wider repertoire of tools. Linked to that is the price quality trade-off and my paperclips report heavily made the point that you have basically broken all this by using competitive tendering to drive down price. Competitive tendering is a wonderful tool for driving down price. And academics who say to me that, that, that the evidence on competitive tendering reducing cost is mixed, I think um, need their, head, their heads read. Of course competitive tendering will drive down price. That's not the question. The question is, how do you do that and preserve quality? Competitive tendering is a phenomenal vehicle for driving down price. And the conclusion I reached when I did the paperclips report was that in times of austerity, severe austerity, governments probably should not use competitive tendering because the quality people won't win. Quality matters. There's, there's a whole series of things that I have discovered recently that you've introduced into this country that weren't here when I, until, you know, when I left in 2011. Um, supposedly, they came out of European law, which make it difficult to bring quality in. For example, you're not permitted to consider, other than in a very superficial way at, at RFQ stage, you're not permitted to consider the quality of the people and the capabilities of the people who, uh, and the experience of the people who are delivering the service. That is lunacy. That is madness and is not something we are doing in Australia. Um, you know, you set up a process where you are obliged to basically, unless they're sort of stupid enough to reveal their idiocy, you're obliged to pick people who've got a history of, you know, might have a history of poor performance. I can't see why you would do that. Contract management, um, contracts require flex. Um, one of the fundamentals of contract theory, guy just got a Nobel Prize on it, is that none of us know the future. You will have to flex the contract from the moment you sign it. That's the truth. That's the reality. And if you have a contractual management regime that is all about gotcha moments and catching providers out because they departed from the strict wording of a contract, then you can't contract for anything more complex than paperclips. Profit's a good thing. Profit's a good thing. Profit does a whole lot of work. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the substitute for putting your money in the bank. Why would I pull my money out of the bank and risk it in the market if, if, if I'm not allowed to make a profit? We've just had a, a prison tender in, in, in uh, New South Wales where the in-house team were permitted to win 
and they won. And they're doing, they're about 15 months in, they're doing a fabulous job. They bid a profit. Why did they bid a profit? Because they're not perfect and they're going to be, they are being financially abated because no one's perfect. And if what they do when they are financially abated is they go across and just ask Treasury for a bundle of money, then they've got no incentives. Profit does a lot of work and I think, again, in Australia, we're more comfortable with that than you have become. I think the conversation here about profit has become quite unfortunate and poisonous. Build markets slowly. I think one of the problems here is that they were built too quickly. Uh, I can remember sitting in a meeting with a bunch of Blair's advisors about two weeks or three weeks before he was due to leave on talking about prison markets and saying to them, slow down, slow down, you're moving too quickly. PPPs and PFI can be made to work. Um, I think the conversation in this country around that has, is, is very path dependent. We started doing these things, DBFOs, before you did. I was coming across here in the mid-90s talking to, to Steve Robson and the Treasury about what we would, had been doing in Australia and the lessons to be learned. Um, but we did not, it was not the only show in town. We have used it where it makes sense and we did not use it to get things off balance sheet, which is what Labor did here. Um, uh, if the risk doesn't, if market risk doesn't shift, then, then, then um, uh, PFIs, as, as you call them, are on balance sheet. Um, and finally, um, I, I think that contestability, the credible threat of competition, offers a way of solving the problem of public sector monopolies without having to outsource. Brilliant, thank you. That was a huge amount of ground covered, so I'm just going to pick your uh, brains on a few quick issues before opening up to questions from the audience. So let's start with the, the last point you made there about um, contestability, and yep. obviously there's been a lot of talk here about having public sector competitors uh, for various services that are currently outsourced. I wondered if there are any particularly good examples from Australia where competition and contestability have been used, but the service hasn't then necessarily been contracted out to the private or voluntary sectors. Yeah, so look, Australia's actually got a number of examples of this going back over some years. Um, one of the interesting case studies which I drew on, I did a paper on this in 2015, I think, that Ansel published. Uh, and where I refer to this was in Sydney Water, which is a public, util public uh, utility still, public corporation, where some of the uh, um, maintenance services were outsourced because it made sense, but a number of the others, they went to the union, signed an MOU with the union because there was a challenge from the, from the regulator to deliver back office support services much more efficiently. And... Um, and they, they then went with the union around to the workplaces to explain to them uh, why they weren't going to be getting so much overtime, um, which meant they were going to be getting um, less take-home pay. So they weren't, they weren't cutting their terms and conditions. They were stopping the games that had been played around, uh, around uh, overtime, which is one of the principal places that the savings were. A, a terrific result and, and delivered. And that influenced some of my thinking on that. The other work... I was, I was very influenced by discussion around this here in around 2000, and in fact the IPPR published a report where it talked about contestability in public services. So the stuff we're doing in prisons that I'm, I'm leading, I'm chairing an interdepartmental committee on this, is probably leading edge because I've been leading it. I've been pushing it based on 20, you know, 20 years almost of, of, of studying this stuff, where, um, as I said, the government wanted to um, outsource a prison. We convinced them to market test it with an in-house bid. The in-house team bid and won fairly. 
uh, with a fabulous bid. Um, by the way, just again to sort of show you the differences, there's probably, I think the 20% figure is roughly right for services that have never been contracted before. It's an average. I think we've got about a 20% um, efficiency improvement on that. Only 10% of it came in money. Half of it came in money. The other half came in better services. There was just a significant service uplift. Um, and it's, as I said, we're now about 15, 16 months in and they're doing a fabulous job. The problem is government side, customer side. We are rubbish at allowing these, giving these people clear specifications, clear outcomes, a clear budget and letting them have the authority uh, to get on with it. Also crap, by the way, in actually teaching them to be managers. It turned out these people weren't managers. They didn't think they were managers. They thought they were just you know, supervisors who got promoted. And so we are gradually shifting the authority onto these people and we've got a training programs. It's not good enough yet, but it's a damn sight better than what we had before, which was nothing. We, you know, as a consultant said to me one day in, in Australia, he said, we have no training programs for the factory managers of government. And so we're, we're concentrating on that. You've obviously got to address the ethical walls questions. You've got to address the level playing field questions. But, you know, the interesting thing out of that is that the union leadership were a bit reluctant to sign up on this. Um, and the uh, commissioned officers and the, and the staff said, we have won this. We want to prove we can do it as well as the private sector. They don't want it watered. They want to be able to feel good about the fact that they can do it as well as the private sector. So there's actually huge goodwill amongst the lower rank of union officials and, and the rank and file who, who want to be able to run. You know, people want to go to work and feel and go home at night feeling they've done a great job, that they've been efficient, um, uh, you know, as well as caring and, and, and effective. Great. I want to pick up next on the question of quality and how you assess that in bids. So we've often heard when we spoke to civil servants that it's just, it's really difficult to assess for that, that you can set a 80% quality threshold at 20% on price, but because it's so difficult to assess the equality, you effectively end up giving most of the bidders the same mark for quality and then it's still assessed just on price. Indeed, how you assess quality was something that the government looked to address uh, recently in the outsourcing playbook that they've published. And I wondered if you had further thoughts on how you can do a better job of assessing quality and indeed any further on the kind of the outsourcing playbook and the, the likelihood that that's going to change practice. Um, the, on, the, on, the, on the last one, um, I think the answer is most likely no. Um, and that's not to say I wouldn't wish it were otherwise, but uh, there's almost nothing in that playbook that I didn't see 20, 20 years ago. Would that be right? Um, and and in t look, I haven't had a lot of time this visit to get out and talk to people, but I've spoken to some. I am hearing more of the same horror stories that I wrote about in that I exposed um, in in, good, in um, the paperclips report. It's going on in spite of the playbook having been prepared and, and written. Um, I don't think they've learned. Um, so in terms of the playbook, um, gee, I wish it were otherwise. Um, uh, am I, do, do I believe that it has to be like this? No, because I have seen governments here in Australia, you know, and Denmark and uh, Ontario, where I'm doing some work, I'm off to Ontario this evening, um, who, 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 don't, who don't function that way. <coughs> Look, on quality, you know, it's interesting, again, this is, this, I guess, is, uh, shows you the vast gulf. 
in New South Wales, we've had a really interesting discussion where Treasury, ha Treasury has pushed so that we have uncoupled price and quality. They are not, you're not doing an 80-20 weighting. That's like weighing um, your affection for your mother um, and, and a persimmon. You know, they just exist in different spaces. Um, so, and, and they're not, on, on the qualitative aspects, they're not even weighting those. Now, why are they, I mean, we, we had lots of discussions about that. Why was Treasury pushing for that? Because they said, this particular woman who was leading the team at the time, had done a lot of procurements, and, and particularly um, PPPs. She said, too many times we have got to the end of the process and we are obliged by the rules to pick someone we know is not the best provider for the task. Now, you need a lot of confidence in the probity of your systems and the competence of your people and you need to have proper checks and balances, but that can be done. But that, can I suggest, is a very different path to the one that the UK has gone down for the last, what, five to seven years. Um, Look, quality is a really interesting question. There's, there's a guy's just done a, uh, his, dis his MBA dissertation at Warwick on this, and I was not supervising but, but advising him. And I, he's done some lovely work un unpacking the, the issues that arise when you attempt to uh, contract. I'm trying to sort of strip out the, the sort of analytical literature uh, language about this. Um, when you set about to engage in writing, a, negotiating and writing a contract, you're doing a number of things that make, mean that you have got to deal with the qualitative questions differently. Price falls naturally into the set of behaviours and the set of actions you're doing. Quality doesn't naturally fall into that. I'm less concerned about that. There's no doubt at all that the qualitative measures are something we need to learn uh, over time and we need to build adaptive contracting models where we improve over time. But you know, when uh, you know, I was there when I was on Serco's board originally and visiting this country as a non-executive director when they decided that they would bid uh, to run a prison and I was deeply um, uns unsure about that for a whole lot of reasons. But one is, you know, running a prison is a really complex thing. And how do you measure all of those dimensions? It turns out they're all very measurable really quite easily measurable. If there's any great learning from prison contracting in this country and in Australia, it's that we can, we can actually specify and measure safety, security and humanity. We can measure all those things and because prisons are a total environment, they're panoptic, we can also monitor them at fairly low cost. The tricky new one is reducing reoffending, and that's, a, that, that's actually a different kind of a problem. But what we're doing is we are sweating that in a way that the academic literature had never sweated it. We're beginning to work out, can you specify and, and measure, and can people have, you know, a provider have sufficient control to know whether or not they made a difference. Now, there's a lot of challenges with that. But I tell you what, although we've learned that payment by outcomes in that space is a lot more complex than people thought it was, what, ten, you know, seven or eight, ten years ago, we have progressed an awful long way compared to where we were. And because we are specifying that in John Moroney Prison, this prison where the in-house team are, 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 are delivering it, we are focusing on a whole series of things that historically within the public sector of prisons in New South Wales we didn't focus on like getting prisons to a job, getting remand prisons to a job 
and, and, and making sure that you're managing your overtime so that you, you're not caught out and you don't have to lock prisoners up and they can't get to their job or to their drug course or whatever. And that comes because you've begun, we've not specified outcomes in that case, we're specifying outputs. In some cases, just specifying processes because we were so hopeless. But we're doing that and we're making, a, we're making progress. So I'm not as pessimist, pessimistic. I mean, I think you've got to be grown up and there are some things that are really, really difficult to specify. Um, but, but, but we have places where we have learned over time to, to specify, measure and incentivise uh, around that. And when I say incentivise, that isn't just about money. In some cases, money is actually a very bad incentive um, to be providing in these cases. So final question from me. Um, you talked about the lack of institutional memory in the UK government, that we've forgotten some of the, the lessons that we had learned 20 years ago. I wonder if it's not just government that's forgotten some of those lessons. Obviously, particularly in the case of Carillion, there was some pretty bad commercial behaviour there, risk-taking, etc. Have some of these private companies forgotten the key lessons as well? I think some of them never learned them. Um, I think part of the difficulty was that this was all being built. You were building so many different markets so quickly that a number of companies entered the, uh, came across from um, overseas, uh, some came from FM, uh, some came from consulting, and they were trying to pick up uh, and copy other people's models really quickly. And they didn't, th they didn't know what they didn't know, and government was not sufficiently aware of that to, um, to be able to test out whether these people were capable of doing it. Likewise, I think some of the experienced companies that had a long track record, track record were tempted over into spaces and, um, you know, we're a contractor and we can, we, can, you know, we can do anything. To be fair, that was based on a history of actually having taken capital with, with the BPO model and Circa with the general uh, public, public sector manager model, and they were the two pioneers of this stuff. Um, they had, they had used those models quite fluidly and flexibly and been able to stretch them uh, quite successfully, but there came a point where they were being stretched either too quickly or into spaces where those lessons didn't apply. Um, so, um, look, I think, you know, one of the lessons I, I'm, for some, for some years now, been writing a book on convict transportation to Australia. Um, for those, who, who you, those of you who don't know, um, Australia was built as a penal settlement and all of the early contracts were, all of the early prison convicts were transported by private contractors, by the ship's captains. And one of the lessons I learned from, have learned from that, there have been many, is that someone has got to have the expertise. And so they built a model it, 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 with 1788 to 90 is the relevant time period, where they decided to just go for lowest price. So there was lots of churn, lots of new entrants. And if you go for that sort of a model, then you better have somebody customer side who's got the institutional memory and who knows what the hell they're doing. And then you can manage them much more tightly. But they didn't have that and they were not interested or didn't understand the need to build it. So I think you can build it both sides um, and there's, there's going to be some level of expertise on both sides. But if you build a market with, a, with lots of churn, lots of um, aggressiveness in it, um, then there's going to have to be deep expertise and deep knowledge government side because it isn't going to be there, the private sector side. 
Great, okay, I'm gonna open it up to questions from the audience. Can I please ask you to ensure that your questions are short, that they are in fact questions rather than statements, uh, and can you please give your name and say where you're from at the beginning, please? So put up your hands and I'll take a few at a time. Okay, so one here and then one at the back. Uh, yes, I'm uh, Nick Sharman. I uh, was uh, managing director of Amy's local government business. Um, Gary, you've talked a lot about the, um, as it were, the um, end of the business around cost saving, the contractor. And I think the use of the contracting model is a very useful uh, concept. But it does presuppose on the government side that there is expertise uh, able to not only let a contract, but manage it over its whole lifetime and be able to uh, generate an alternative if the private sector fails. Now, in my experience, uh, civil servant is a long way from that delivery expertise. In local government, which I've spent most of my life in, uh, we have got a much closer engagement with the front line, but uh, have stripped out a lot of that expertise. And in my view, the big crisis as well as being on the contractor side, the model there, is actually within government in various levels of government, which is totally uh, uh, unable to manage this very complex process that you've talked about. I'm just interested in yeah. how you reflect on that from, yeah. from your experience. Yeah. Great, and then one in the center at the back. Thank you, Josh Bell from Liberator. Uh, UK Limited, we do quite a lot of outsourcing both across local and central government. So my question is about your alma mater, um, Gary, um, and the extent to which you think there's a lot of sense in what Rupert Soames has said about the need to be, uh, for government to be very clear about the risks that it believes it is transferring to the private sector and the extent to which, certainly over the past 10 years with austerity, that has driven an overly transactional approach from the public sector in terms of how it drives its private sector suppliers? Great, so that's uh, one question on government tech fees and one on risk transfer. Um, so the answer is yes. Um, and, um, you know, given how much, um, how much contracting government does, this ought to be a core expertise and we ought to be very good at it. Um, so that's, if you like, the obvious level. Um, I guess the question is, why is it after talking about this for, you know, how many years has that not happened? Um, I've just done a piece of work in Australia, it hasn't been released, not sure whether it will be, on, on, on why does government have problems with delivery? And I think there are actually some much more fundamental problems. I mean, one is that the, the, the top end of government and the centre of government is a long way from the people who deliver and the, the issues involved and the challenges involved in delivery. And there is a, a snobbishness. The policy class, and if I can just, for the policy makers here, my, my career in government was in, was, was in policy. Um, the policy class um, uh, looked down their noses at delivery. They, 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 by and large, it's beneath them. Um, and they also, they also encounter the world in a very, very different way to how delivery do. And I won't unpack that here. I have whole lectures I do on that. But um, so I think there's a sort of a, an even more fundamental problem. So, you know, one of the things with John Moroney prison and, the, and the, what we're doing with the rest of those prisons is this lack of understanding that 
the managers of frontline services, the management teams, not just the, the present governor, are hugely important people. And they're treated like, like crap. Uh, like they don't matter, like they're, they're disposable, um, well, like there's no need to actually train them. Um, and they're hugely, I mean, everything really turns on whether or not the governor and, and, and his or her team um, are, are fit for purpose and performing well. So, I, I, you know, one level the answer is, well, obviously yes. At another level, I think there's a really interesting challenge that um, government struggles with delivery and contracting is just delivery writ large. I mean, the contractors don't do anything else but deliver. And they're sort of in that messy, untidy world where entropy prevails. Things keep breaking all the time. That's, but that's not unique, as you know, not unique to the contractor. That happens uh, with public providers as well. And, you know, Sharon Shoesmith gets taken out and hung um, because it suited a minister to... Um, to, to have a, a very simple narrative and to get the, get, get the, the problem off their plate. Uh, on risk, I mean, I, yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the key themes in my paperclips report. I mean, what's gone on? I mean, if you want to look at stuff that is just so obviously appalling, look at the kind of risks that government has tried to shift. Um, so that's... Um, reveals deeply perverse behaviours. The confusing thing is why did companies keep signing up to that for as long as they did? And that is worthy of some serious study. I, I dabbled, with, I, I played with some of the explanations for that in my report. I think I've got some of them. But there's still this really confusing question. I mean, it was probably, what, five years? There's still some stuff going on. I mean, I was just told the other day of a procurement that's going on right now where a very experienced player seems to be bidding at something that is unlikely to, you know, to be able to deliver the ridiculous targets that are being built, built into it. So this is going on even today, but it, it ran for five to seven years. And I think that's the intriguing question. I mean, you might have forgiven public servants, civil servants, for thinking that companies would push back if this was undeliverable, but there, are, there, are, there appear to be it's evident there are circumstances where, for a surprisingly long period of time, companies will actually take a, a, a gun out and with, you know, even only half of the chambers, you know, they've sort of got half the chambers empty and the other half loaded, just spin it and, 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 click, and click the, uh, the, the hammer. So I'm, um, yeah, I mean, look, what's going on here is bizarre. And, as I said, I... I called it out rather bluntly. I wasn't thanked by the Cabinet Office for it, um, I'll hasten to add. But, the, but the, the other question, and the question that those in the public sector are responsible for working with, the private and not-for-profit sectors, we need to understand what are the conditions under which people will actually behave very badly or stupidly and take on those sort of risks and repeatedly. Great, okay, another round of questions. Uh, so one there and then one there. Hi, I'm Rachel. I work for DCMS um, and I'm part of what in the team that's responsible for the Social Value Act. So I was just wondering if um, we're trying to see how, what ways we can make that have a bit more teeth and make sure that more contracting and outsourcing is done with that in mind. And I was wondering if you've got any experiences from Australia you could So, so just take, you have to unpack that and take me through that a bit more. Okay, so the, the Social Value Act is all about um, 
how much social value and benefit to the community that you okay. get through the contracting. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so in addition to quality and price, you've also got yep. social value. Yep, yep, yep. Great. And then there was a gentleman. Yep. Um, William Hall from Capita. Um, I just was wondering, you mentioned about um, contract management and about kind of agile versus, you know, one way. Um, I wonder if you could give a few characteristics of what that looked like in practice um, and kind of if there's a you know, best practice example as well, that'd be great. Okay. Great. So it's one question about the Social Value Act, yep. which is being reviewed at yeah. the moment, and then contract management. Yeah. So um, the answer is, obviously, contracts are... There's a lot of evidence to show that contracts are an extraordinarily powerful tool for driving a lot other than... You know, you can build other things in. But the more things you build in, the more you weigh it down, the less, the less agile and effective it'll be. So the temptation, I promise you, there's going to now going to be a mistake made on this. They're going to load in lots and lots of additional things, and they will be specifying probably... Speci I mean, it, there'll be lots of regulation and counting and measuring going on and intrusion, and all of that is basically going to burden providers with... Um, more than they're going to be able to do. So, yes, it's a great tool for that. Lots of examples of, of, of where uh, that has been used. In Australia, we're having a lot of success at the moment with, uh, in, in Aboriginal communities or in areas that, are, that have got you know, substantially intact Aboriginal communities, insisting that they um, uh, address employment and employment opportunities and training. And it's working well. Um, so, you know, yet, you know, yes, you can do it. Um, obviously, again, it can be done badly or well. But, but, if you, but, but the temp everyone's now going to crowd in. And there's going to be lots of them. And that will, that will not just begin, that will very quickly undermine the effectiveness of... I mean, this, you know, there isn't time here to do it today. But this comes back to questions of what is it that contracting does when, when it works... What's going on? And you need to have a pretty, clue, a pretty clear view about that, about what's, what, what's happening that means that a contract is better than a, the traditional old-fashioned way of command and control handoff, that where that, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, that, that, that produced efficiency and effectiveness problems. Um, so you need to understand that. Uh, and, and whatever changes you make, if you're compromising the fundamental reasons why contracting worked, then don't use contracting to do it. Um, it's, it's, it's just going to get in the way. And one of the things I actually learned, there was the first report we did at the Institute where we, I got one of my people to go out and interview. It was a pilot to start with. We interv she interviewed 13 people who used to deliver, used to manage a similar service inside government who were now doing it as a, you know, back to government as a, as a contract manager. So same people, same task, different environment. And so it was, well, what's different? Um, we subsequently did a quant study and nobody was interested in the quant study because in, in the qual one, we captured voice. We, we, these people spoke. It was our most important <laughs> report, um, most influential report. One of the things that came through was, I am given a clear, I have a very clear understanding of what success looks like, I have a clear time frame, I have a clear budget, and I'm allowed to get on with it and do it. That, that stuff's really, really important. 
And it's a lot of the stuff we don't do when we hand off to public servants to manage things. We don't give them that, that sort of clarity. Can I ask one quick follow-up question yeah. on that? Um, so clearly one of the reasons for the Social Value Act is to try and make it easier for uh, smaller providers, particularly voluntary sector providers, to win contracts that they might not otherwise win. And you said something interesting, which is kind of using contracts for what they're good at. Now, a lot of people in the voluntary sector would say, well, the problem is contracting full stop, not the measures that are used to determine who gets it, and that actually what should be brought back is far greater use of discretionary grants, etc. Is that something you I would agree. agree with? I agree with that. I agree with that. Where a not-for-profit is a large quasi-corporate and is delivering large, highly specifiable services, it ought to be contractual. I have a game I play with my, my students um, have for, for some years, quite, you know, seven or eight years now. Name a public service that was invented by government. Can't involve violence, right? Because that's government's <laughs> speciality. Um, and the answer is we've only ever been able to find one partial example, which is um, maternal uh, child welfare programs. Almost, almost everything was invented overwhelmingly by the not-for-profit sector, churches or, or charities. Um, and that, there's no need for government to be embarrassed about that. Government does equity, right? Government took those things and made them available universally. NHS is a classic example of that, wasn't it? The basic model wasn't invented by government. Government took it and made it universal. Um, so, where, you know, if you're tightly specifying services uh, through a contract and not making you know, grant-based funding available, then you're not going to get that kind of experimentation and innovation that the not-for-profit sector historically was so important for. Um, so I think there's, a, there's still a huge role for uh, grant-based funding. Um, the other question was agile versus waterfall. Um, look, this is leading in IT. The best example I... The sort of... The come-to-Jesus moment for me was when I... There was a recent piece of work I was doing for the Australian Public Service Review on, on contracting, and I spoke to the strategy director of the Digital Transformation Agency of the federal government in Australia, who had... It was only 12 months in from one of our large, one of our large banks. And so <laughs> this was a very different world that he'd found himself in. What the, what the private sector is doing with IT is building ecosystems, building a system and populating it with vert you know, vertically and horizontally with spaces and populating that with the, be the providers best able to deliver those services. So that is not sequential. Um, it, it, it will not, it's not, if you go waterfall with IT, you wind up with what the, with the UK did uh, in, the Blair, in, the, in the Blair years where you wind up with very, very large, in the hands of very large suppliers. And the GDS is partly about moving into that more flexible uh, direction, although, like everyone else, it's learning a lot as it goes and making a lot of mistakes. Um, but if you, if you look at the supply chain literature, um, and there's, there's, a, there's a really terrific, it took me a long while to get into it properly, but there's a great literature around supply chains. The, the private sector are not do, doing waterfall procurement for all of those support services. They are engaging with suppliers in a much more strategic way and thinking about ecosystems, thinking about the totality of that and where they fit and how they structure the suppliers to feed into that. Um, 
And I, I think a lot of the frontline services where the language, including in this country, has been overwhelmingly about markets, I think it's, while they're not supply chains in quite that same sense, they are much more like a supply chain than, than I think historically we've thought about them. They have market-like qualities, but government still has got to be responsible for the design. So, look, the IT sector is where that, and, and, and go private sector, we're, we're doing it here and Australia and Canada uh, in, in, in ICT and government, and, and typically we're not getting it right. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different way of doing things. Government has been doing waterfall for 200 years, and it's going to take us time to learn how to do it differently and time to reassure the public that it can be done, you can build ecosystems and populate the parts of those ecosystems in something other than the varnish tender box approach and, and the probity issues and the integrity issues can be respected and addressed. It's going to be challenging. But we're, go we're going to go there. We government will go there slower and, and in a clunkier way um, than the private sector. But, um, um, you know, we, we in government just do not talk supply chain. We do not discuss that. That is not a frame that we use when we speak about um, in, engaging with external providers. It's just simply not that, that, is, that is not there, that language. Great, let's have another round of questions. Uh, we will have one from John uh, and then one there. And come to your uh, John Tizard, <coughs> an advisor and commentator on public services, including outsourcing. Gary, when you talked about companies with the revolver to their head, it reminded me of the need to, for the public sector to be much more knowledgeable about business models and ownership models. And we've seen recently in social care in particular, the impact of hedge funds and private equity wanting very quick returns, playing some incredible games with property and so on to maximize profit but also for publicly quoted companies looking to realize shareholder value by getting growth, growth, and growth again. And I think that's often been a driver, has it not, for taking on contracts which were inappropriate. So how can government, the public sector, take into account and be cognizant of the impact of ownership and business models? Research Consultancy. Uh, primarily, uh, the report was published 2016, Gary, your report was published 2016, and from then on, um, we are hearing that the large uh, companies who outsource government contracts are going under. Day in and day out, we are hearing NHS doesn't have cash, they are going under, local councils running under, uh, SMEs, week on week out, they are shutting down. So, who's actually winning here? I mean, like, if all around us is crippling and we are falling down, somebody needs to win, so which means, like, Who's winning here, and when do you think this market correction will kick in? Thank you. Great. So, ownership models, and why does everyone seem to be losing? Yeah. Um, well, can I can I answer the second one first? I mean, one of the things that you've had that we didn't have in Australia is an austerity drive, and I mean, the rest of us in the in the I guess the industrialised world look on in you know amazement at what's been happening here. Um, and, you know, I, you know, in a sense, in, in, in defence of outsourcing, as it were, I mean, if you look at prisons, we had a trial here in this country about the use of performance benchmarking, the misuse, the gross abuse of performance benchmarking within the public system, 
at the same time as the performance contracts were being grossly abused as well. And the evidence shows us rather dramatically that you can actually destroy a prison system equally well by doing both of those things. Um, these are, you know, these are high-powered performance incentive systems um, being, being uh, misused and being used to drive cost out of a system, you know, in, in the short term. And that's, um, you know, inevitably that's going to break things. So, um, I, you know, I understand that the government, of, you know, the, the, the current government took a decision that it was going to uh, deal with its um, budget overhang in short order rather than taking time to do that. The consequences of that have been that you've just got a whole lot of services. I mean, social care is the perfect example. These are, there's just been collective lying about, about what was doable. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do a lot of work in prisons. It really began with some research and work I did here in the UK. Um, uh, you know, I think what's happened to the UK prisons is, is criminal. I mean, you know, there are certain, frankly, I'll be brutally, I'll be br brutally honest about it. There's some ministers who, frankly, should not be um, welcome in, in, in company, in you know, public company for what they presided over in, in the UK prisons, because there have been, you know, uh, there are a whole lot of suicides and 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 prison officers' lives who were destroyed as a result of what happened there, and um, it's it's scandalous. Um, I mean, I think there's this inter interesting question about why it was that the civil service didn't feel it had the authority to speak back uh, and you have no school of government and you don't have an institute of public administration, a Royal Institute of Public Administration anymore. You've got the Institute for Government, one little, on, one little enclave. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, there needs to be, you know, I think it's sad and unfortunate that, that, that truth to power wasn't, you know, truth was not being spoken to power. So. So, I mean, what you're saying is we can actually set this up so everyone loses. Yep, that can be done. You can equally set this up so everyone wins. John, um, uh, uh, look, the point you make, you know, is, is absolutely right. And, and in reality, Cabinet Office is focusing on trying to glean information from companies at a level of detail they do not need to have. And they're missing the sort of things they ought to be focusing on. The social care one is a good example. Um, I have spoken about that when I gave evidence um, at the Public Administration Committee last year. Um, I used it as an example. Um, that's, not a, that's not a market, to use that language, um, that could be managed at local authority level. They can commission and organise their local supply chain, but, but how the market functions and how well it functions had to, be, had to have been regulated and managed and stewarded at a higher level. And frankly, the view in, this, in, in central government was that it was clever of them that they'd offloaded all of these responsibilities to local government without the funding. That was sort of cons considered to be politically smart. Socially, grotesquely irresponsible. Um, you know, given what, again, I mean, you know, it's not as if this happened last week. We've been watching this happen for five years and, you know, almost daily reports of what it means in the lives of vulnerable human beings. I mean, I, this is appalling stuff. Deborah Avon, an American academic, wrote a book on, uh, you know, contracting for military 
services, um, which while dealing with that specific subject is interesting to read because she's grappling with the bigger and deeper questions. And she has this great line in the book where she said, if government awards contracts to cowboys, it shouldn't be surprised if it winds up with a market <laughs> full of cowboys. Um, government's responsible for the quality and, and the character of the people who play in markets. And in that particular market, because of how it evolved, that would have required some intervention. But once you saw Guy Hands come into a market, let's be brutally frank, you know that something's not working when Guy Hands thinks this is, a this is the market for him. That's, you know, the, uh, the alarm bells should have gone off instantly. Wrong person for this market. Um, and they didn't. Whatever happened, nobody felt, nobody felt that they had to get off, up their, off their seat and do something about that. So, you know, the wonderful pioneering work that was done by the IFG years ago now on market stewardship um, and system stewardship, um, I don't know that we've taken it very far. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in Ontario lately, I'm off there tonight, um, and, you know, we sort of access, I mean, people access the IFG stuff, but there's not, there's a little bit beyond that, but not a lot. And so we've actually been grappling with some of those questions about what does system design, and I push the word market out, what does system design and system stewardship actually look like? And I don't think there was, that has really not, you know, it's caught the imagination, it hasn't caught, really caught Whitehall or, you know, it's, it, it, it hasn't penetrated. People talk about it, but in fact haven't been doing it, and social care is probably as good an example as you could, as, as you could pick. Thank you. I think I'm going to uh, wrap it up there because we are running out of time. Um, thank you to everyone who has come here today. Um, as Professor has helpfully highlighted, we have excellent reports on uh, contracting and market stewardship that are all available on our website. Um, and finally, could I ask everyone to please give a round of applause and thank Professor Sturge for coming today. Thank you. <laughs>